Hello and welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. Today's guest is self-proclaimed philosopher and student of spiritual ontology, Mo Natra. I didn't know what to expect from this one, as with many of the guests on this show, I hadn't known Mo before we spoke. But as you'll hear in our conversation, I was pleasantly surprised and engaged with his wisdom and insights. He has a breadth of knowledge and experience with everything from Islamic fundamentalism as a child to Hinduism to psychedelics. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I have a feeling he's going to be a regular guest on the show. He has his own podcast called Connecting the Dots, and you can find him on Instagram at Monatra. That's spelled M-O-E-N-A-T-U-R-A with no spaces. But before we get to it, if you like what we do, we would really appreciate it if you support the show by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on your platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra altruistic, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity. We're also on Instagram, so give us a follow there and reach out at Pursuit of Infinity Pod. YouTube is almost ready, and I say this every week, but please bear with us and stay tuned. Without further delay, thank you so much for listening, and please help me to welcome to the show Mo Natra. Hey, Mo. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on. So uh, in reading your bio, it seems that you had sort of a rough path in terms of finding yourself, finding your spirituality, and finding um, your place on this earth. So let's jump right into your story and how it is that you came to uh, the place that you are. Well, um... As many people in Egypt, for example, and in the Middle East at large, they were uh, born and raised to be a Muslim. And um, that was pretty much what happened with me. Uh, I was uh, born in a poor family, as cliche as this sounds. Um, and some way, I don't know why exactly, the starting point, I was not really caught up with how can I make as much money as possible, that sort of thing, which is pretty natural for someone in that kind of an environment, um, someone in that kind of a situation. But for some reason, I was, I've always been distracted, um, so to speak, with the metaphysical aspect of existence. I, of course, at that point, I didn't know, even know what metaphysics is in the first place, but I've always been the kind of person who's constantly observing and questioning everything around him. And that started off very early in my life. It was um, actually kind of annoying for my parents because I was asking about things that were not meant to be questioned. And I was asking about things that they never thought of their answers in the first place, right? So they kind of disliked that and they tried to, um, out of love, but with um, a little like poor wisdom, they tried to suppress uh, my curiosity uh, in the sense of um, blaming me, um, making me fear the consequences of it. And eventually, I just um, decided to keep it for myself instead of speaking it out loud because it was very problematic in the environment I grew up in. 
But then eventually I just couldn't help staying this way and I had to figure out these answers. And that was pretty much around the age when I turned 19. Um, and at that point, I have already started off some kind of a career to be a programmer and I was doing pretty well at it. But then these questions from my childhood, they never went away. And if anything, they got more intensified, of course, in my personal uh, secretive life. And I had to just pause. I had to put everything on hold and I had to, in some sense, come out of the closet to my parents and let them know that I am not the person you've always thought that I am. I am not a Muslim. And I have these questions ever since. And I don't know what I am. And I want to figure out these answers. And I cannot keep myself doing something. <clears throat> Sorry. Doing something that even though I'm good at it and I, to some extent I enjoy it, it's just not fulfilling enough. It doesn't seem as important as figuring out the answers for the most important questions, in my opinion, um, to be answered in life. So um, it was a tough path, but eventually they kind of were, to some extent, forced to accept it. Of course, I'm summarizing all the fights and all of the drama, but eventually they had no choice. They can't make me do things physically. So eventually they gave in and I had my fair share of isolation, so to speak. Uh, of course, it's not total isolation because I still was living with them and all of that. But for the most part, I lost um, all my connections with um, the people that were close to me. I pretty much had a some sort of a reset because I started questioning everything that I was interested in that I thought that was valuable to me. And I started off from scratch, so to speak, again. Um, and somewhere along the lines, I just happened to find the answers that I was looking for. And it first started off with a... Um, in the sense of concepts and uh, intellect and thoughts. But um, I think that's pretty normal as a start. And eventually along the way, it became a direct experience. Um, and that's all. Yeah. So was this something that you were actively seeking out over a extended period of time? Or was this more of a spontaneous sort of experience that you had? Mm. That's a good question, actually. Mm. I think for the most part, I just, I, I seeked after, I sought after many different things that um, I, I don't think they were the fundamental um, desire. Like I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. Of course, someone may say that, oh yes, you were looking to find yourself, to know who you are, but not even that came to mind as I was doing any of these things. Because at first I was a religious Muslim and I was just questioning my own religion. And then I was um, pretty much an atheist for about two to three years. And at that point, I was just thinking about things in a scientific manner, like um, what is everything is made out of, things like that. And eventually I started getting um, introduced to spirituality. And then I was trying to, at the very beginning as an atheist, I was trying to see, well, are there other creatures out there? Again, very surface level stuff. Uh, perhaps um, how to find God, on and on and on, all sorts of different questions. But I think the fundamental thing that anyone is looking for is not happiness, is not um, God, is not this or that. They're looking for fulfillment, and fulfillment happened to come out of two ways, perhaps three. 
Um, the first one is knowing who you are or having at least some idea on who you are. Um, and the other one comes from doing the things that expresses the idea that you are. And the third one, perhaps from supporting other people in the in an intentional sense, right? So I think that was um, pretty much what was going on in the background, um, you know, uh, of my search. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you say that you were brought up as a Muslim. And yeah. looking back now, um, having sort of a broader breadth of spiritual awareness, is there anything that you learned through being a Muslim and through studying that and studying Islam that mm-hmm. you can say is beneficial to you now that you can sort of look back on and appreciate? Hmm. I think the best part about it is that I I don't disregard religions altogether, you know? Like, um, I don't even try to focus on the things that don't make sense, the things that seem contradictory within the same book or with, uh, within the whole uh, religious um, paradigm. I focus more on the pattern that doesn't break in all of these books. And it's not just in the religious books. That pattern can be found in science, can be found in pretty much any book. You know, You can find it in how people casually speak in the street. But if you looked on a deeper level, so to speak, you would find some fundamental truth that almost never changed, but their expression may differ over time or different languages. So I think that part is like, I have no regrets or, uh, over it, even though it was somewhat uh, of a tough period uh, on me, um, but I don't regret it. I learned a lot from from it. I still read through the Quran, but not just the Quran. I have also right next to me, I have the Bible. I have the Lotus Sutra, Tao Te Ching, and um, the book for Hinduism is called the Song of God and the Torah, right? So all of these six books, they are very interesting. I don't necessarily follow any of them on their own, but I'm definitely not repelled by either of them either, you know? So I would say, yeah, you know, like these, these things are not, necessarily uh, a bunch of stories, random stories, right? So instead of trying to think if these stories are true or not, I think and I ask myself, what is the truth in the story, right? What is the wisdom? What is the value in it? Because it has to be there some way or another, right? Yeah, Yeah, I think you're really onto something there because it seems to me that the way that we interpret things in sort of a westernized, quote-unquote, civilized culture is we think that what we're reading in the Bible and in most of these holy books are meant to be chronological and literal truth. When mm. there are so many different interpretations of holy books, including what you were just saying. And it seems to me that these stories are more like reflections of human archetypes that lie deep within our unconscious. And yeah. if you can read them with that perspective, the lessons are endless. You can spend a year on one passage and you can just absorb so much wisdom from from just that one passage or just the one book yep for sure i mean i think sam harris um he on the end of faith his book called the end of faith i think at the very end of it he brought a random recipe for you know from some cooking book something like that and he got the recipe and then he turned it into something really profound right and the thing about that is that it, um, the danger of it is that it can make one 
um, how should I say this? Um, decredit or devalidate anything altogether because who knows, maybe I'm just adding to it something that is not already there or that perhaps it can make you very skeptical about anything that you find meaning or profundity in it. Perhaps that's just your bias. You just want to make something out of it that is not already there, right? And that's a very deep um, philosophical topic. Are things actually there or I'm just creating them in some sense, right? So that's um, the most tricky part of it to kind of draw the line and in some sense try to see how far your influence on the passage, so to speak, or the paragraph is and how it actually has truth in it or has wisdom in it, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I like that you sort of said in so many words, is reality external or is reality internal? Am I projecting myself onto the world around me and seeing mm. a different reality than everyone else? So that begs yeah. the question, and this is something that I think about constantly and that we talk about on this show all the time, and is that in what ways do you think consciousness interacting with the physical world creates reality? Like, do you feel that consciousness is primary or do you feel like the external world in a materialistic way is primary? Mm. Mm. I see. Well, for me, I don't really see um, a line that you can separate the external from the internal, right? And that's a very uh, deep topic again, um, because from one standpoint, you can see that even the so-called internal, as in thoughts and emotions, you can see them as external because you are still experiencing them. So there is the, the experiencer and there are the experiences. So the things that are that seemed at first as close as they can get to the so-called internal, in some sense, can become an external to you, right? So who am I that is perceiving these thoughts? And can that sense of perception, can that perceiver be perceived? And obviously not. It can never be perceived. So from that standpoint, it's like some sort of a dead end. No matter what is happening is external to you. But at the same time, the danger of this realization, which is what most people understand, is that they start going around and then I look you in the eye and I say like, hey, man, I'm not the body, right? And that's from this standpoint that I just explained. But the... um. The funny part about it is that when I say that I'm not the body, you just witness the body saying it's not, right? Because it, again, it's just one fundamental question, even in that specific standpoint, is the perceiver capable of speaking? Because if it spoke, it became an experience in of itself, right? So when I say that I am not the body, that's the body saying that it's not one, right? And then it becomes funny, it becomes some sort of like ironic or paradoxical to say so. And the point is that it goes back to something, again, the, the kind of pattern that I was referring to earlier that people say in a casual manner, but I find a lot of profound truth in it. Something like, for example, when people say, oh man, it's just me, myself, and I. Who are these three, right? And you can, my understanding of it is that the me is the sense of self that is is not perceivable in the first place because it does, so to speak, all the perception, right? 
And then the myself is this, the form, right? And the I is the great I am, as Moses, for example, described God. And it's basically the rest of who you actually are, not the sense of you that you generally experience yourself as, is the rest of you that feels, you can call it even the subconscious you. And that's the you that you're kind of like walking inside of it or life or God or whatever, how you want to call it. And these three are actually one of the same, but to illustrate it in a comprehensible manner, the me is the sense of self that is always in the background of all things. And the myself is the one that is speaking to you right now. That's still me, right? But the thing is, when I say, what I'm saying means that, yes, I am the body, but at the same time, there is this teaching that you're not really your body, right? And that's the, to combine these together, you're you're gonna come out with um, a specific kind of understanding that it is true in from that standpoint that I'm not the body because I'm the perceiver of the body. And then from the other standpoint that I just um, suggested and put on the table, you are the body. But the question is, which version of the body are you? Because the body is always changing, right? So the accurate way, and it's not very convenient at all to describe yourself is to say that I am the body until you die. Because you're all of these versions all together, but never one of them on its own, right? Because fundamentally, so to speak, you are the change of events that is happening. It has some way, somehow we can get into it, but somehow it created, it gave birth to that sense of self through that change of event of, of a form perceiving another. It kind of, these information that are constantly being perceived, in some way or another, it gave birth to the sense of self. And in that way, you could say that you're the son of God because God is all there is right? And all that stuff that we know about. And somehow through God perceiving God, it gave this sense of self that I must be perceiving you, right? So again, it's that um, you have this body that is always changing, but you cannot separate the change from the body itself, right? It's like movement of the hand that is change, but you can't separate from the change from the movement itself. It's just like how Alan Watts, for example, beautifully said it, you can't separate the dance from the dancer, right? In order to see the dance, there must be a dancer, right? And um, it's the same thing with you or consciousness or change. I like calling it change because most people don't really use that word and you don't have a lot of meanings attached to it. But when you say consciousness, uh, easily people go like, oh yes, my consciousness and they point at the brain or... Uh, me at the back of the head. Like, I don't know where you're pointing at. I mean, obviously it's here, but is it just there? And the answer is no. It's, it, consciousness is not limited within the brain. Of course, it's there somewhere in the brain. It's the brain itself. It's the background to the brain, all of that. But I, I've kind of grown sensitive to that word consciousness uh, because of how people are adding so much to it. So I would rather call it um, change or, for example, in Hinduism, Brahman, and Brahman is really nothing, yet it's everything simultaneously because you can't separate it from everything that is going on. You can't have an object and then Brahman on the side. They're one of the same. And Brahman is really the change of events, the constant change of events. And that's kind of what Abraham 
came to understand God as when he was looking for God and he looked at the moon and the moon went away and then he's like, that can't be God. Can't God can't go away. God should be present at all times. Maybe it's the sun is much bigger, it's much brighter, but even the sun went away, the planets, the stars, everything around him, including his own body is changing. What is the only thing that doesn't change? Change. That's the only thing that never changes. It's constantly happening. And that is you. It's just um, very almost impossible to grasp um, what it means, really, what it implies to be change, right? Because if you um, tried so hard to understand what it means to be change, eventually you will realize that as cliche as it is, that you are everything that is happening because everything that is happening is how change looks like. It just doesn't look like anything in specific. Anything that happens is change. And that is you, right? Yeah, it seems that the separation happens when you try to put things into a language, into words to try to describe them. Yeah. Um, and to me, you're you're taking something from a state of change and you're trying to describe it in a state of it being static because language yeah. is static. When you have yes. a description of something, you're taking it out of reality and you're making it static. Um, yeah. And in that way, I think it's pretty much impossible to describe certain things because like you said, it brings back the concept of paradox. And when you do bring something that is in constant flux, constant change, and is a constant form of energy creating itself and, you know, flowing and forming with all the energy that's surrounding it. It seems mm -hmm. that that to me is where that separation begins. Um, and that sort of brings me oddly to um, when we're children. I feel like children, are, like they innately, we innately as children, have this sense of wonder and we're we seem to be closer to the mystery as children and mm -hmm. then it seems that as we start to label things like when you see a bird outside and your mother or father says that's a bird it sort of removes the removes the wonder from yeah. the bird itself so you're not looking at this beautiful form that is embodying formlessness and is a manifestation of the universe and God itself, what you're looking at is now a word and yeah. a word consists of letters. And again, like it's this whole notion of taking something, breaking it down into pieces, describing each piece, and then sort of claiming ownership over it and saying, now mm -hmm. I know what this is. Let's move on to the next thing. When there yeah. is an infinite amount of wonder in every inch of this world and every neuron and every neutrino in this universe yeah for sure yeah i mean the something that is commonly um experienced within the so-called mystical experiences is that um you like for example on psychedelics right um i've only experienced with uh, truffles so far and um, I've only done it recently. I've had my fair share of weird, so to speak, experiences before that. Uh, but it was my first time. It happened very recently. And um, I expected, like with all the things that I understood, I expected, say, for the experience to be as real as 10 out of 10. And the experience exceeded my expectation far more than that. 
because it didn't feel like a high, like aside from the trippy stuff, aside from the visuals, right? I wasn't in it for these things, to be honest with you, but it just felt like you're looking around, everything is pretty much as it is. It just feels very alive out of the sudden, right? And the thing is, what happens um, in that moment is that there are all sorts of terms, labels, and meanings floating around, so to speak. And in that state of consciousness or state of being, these labels that are floating around suddenly fall down. So it's kind of looking at a reality with no filter in some extent. And then suddenly you start seeing things not as what you thought they were, but without any thought altogether, just without anything added to them. You're just perceiving them as clearly as possible. And in, when you do so, you're going to start seeing the obvious that everything around you is life. Because how can you be somewhere where life isn't, right? And it's a very obvious thought, but when it becomes a direct experience, it puts you in a state of awe because you start realizing that every moment you're experiencing, you're literally sitting inside of life right now or the universe. Because some people, when they mean, oh man, I'm, I would like to go through space, go through the universe. The universe is also here. The universe is not outside of the planet. It's everywhere around you. And then you suddenly become aware of it, how it's constantly surrounding you all the time. And of course, I'm talking in the sense that you are separate from it, right? And then at first it feels without any, so to speak, ego death or any of that stuff. Uh, simplistically put, at first it feels like you're sitting inside of it. It's surrounding you all the time. And then something as a table is no longer just a table. It's, it's, it's literally life formed, taking that shape of a table, sitting right in front of you. And it's very much aware of you in its own way. It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have a mouth. It doesn't talk. It doesn't move. But it's very much aware of you being here. And in some way, it feels like you're inside a mind altogether. And it's not just a room you're sitting in. This is a mind shaped like a room and has things shaped as a furniture, but that's just a mind. And it's very hard to comprehend the experience by just me talking about it. But when you actually experience it, whether on psychedelics or not, then you start seeing that you're never actually alone. You only feel alone when there are no human beings around, which is understandable since we're very social creatures, but you're not ever alone. It's, you're always inside of life and it's always aware of you, right? So yeah, you're become very, uh, I wouldn't say one, because again, that's one of the terms that are uh, heavily misused and misinterpreted that um, say in some mystical experience, oh yes, I became one with everything. Oneness doesn't feel like anything. There is nothing, there is nobody to feel like I'm one with everything in the first place. At that point, that sense of self is long gone. There is nothing. Perhaps once you come back, so to speak, uh, you would retain some memory of not feeling like you were there in the first place. But what happens in, a, in a, the most accurate way to describe it is an extreme sense of connectedness and intimacy. 
And that's what they call oneness. But oneness actually doesn't feel like any of these things. It feels like nothing at all. Nothing is going on, right? Because there is nobody to feel anything in the first place. And it's just there. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm glad you brought up psychedelics because psychedelics mm. are the first way that I sort of stumbled upon this, this journey. Um, I did a lot of research on different people, different philosophies, different ways of thinking, Terrence McKenna, Alan Watts, um, you know, a few of the people who are like introductory, you know, Buddhist teachers and things of that nature. And like you said, jumping into a psychedelic experience, what my goal was, was not to see the visuals and not to party and have fun and have a good time and this and that. It was to really go inside and to see what these things could teach me about myself mm -hmm. and about reality. And it's just so odd to me that a mushroom or a truffle mm. can impart such wisdom on us. So my yeah. question is, and this is an unanswerable question, but why does a mushroom care about me understanding reality at its mm. core? And why, is, why does a mushroom seem to point me in the direction of truth in a, in a direction of connectedness, togetherness, and progress? Mm. Yeah, great question, man. I mean, after my three experiences with truffles, uh, two of them were somewhat of normal dosages, and the third one was a heroic one, right? And um, after all three of them, I was reading a book by Alan Watts, and then I found that um, he was talking about his experiences with LSD, and I discovered that it blew my mind away when I realized that both of us had the exact same concern and thought during our experiences. And it was that it seems like the substance is magnifying my already formed perspective like a thousand times, but it's not really teaching me something new. And that's when instantly right after you get this, some sort of like a metaphysical slap on the face and then bam, it actually magnifies everything that you're already seeing. But when it does that, instead of it being a dot, it becomes a much, much larger sphere. And when that happens, you start seeing the gaps in your perception, the things that you thought you knew, but you didn't. And you didn't even know that you didn't know in the first place. And that's the tricky part. And that's where it starts uh, showing you these things. And for me personally, before I consumed the um, truffles, I was told that it takes about 60 minutes for the effects to kick in, for you basically to be in that state. And um, I just happen to be a very hypersensitive kind of a person to substances and many things in general. So for me, as weird as it was for my trip sitter, I felt the things five minutes in. I was like, am I supposed to feel something now? And then he's like, what are you feeling? And then I said, like, I don't know, but it feels weird. I don't feel sober at all, definitely not sober. And I don't know what is going on exactly. And that was the first confusion that I had. But through these three experiences, I came to realize one thing, that that so-called truffles, again, that's a label in it, and which is actually in truth, in all truth, I should say, it's an aspect of life that is very, very, very intelligent for some reason, even though it looks like a thing that is just like so small, you eat it, that's nothing. But it's, for some reason, it's very intelligent. And um, sometimes it, it doesn't have to be wise, actually. Sometimes it can be very pathetic. 
And I've had that on my third experience, which was the heroic dose. And I was coming in with a lot of respect for this substance because I've had a great profound experience with it. And I was like, here I am again, but this time around with a heroic dose, please me show, please show me what I'm blind to. And then it started trolling me. And I was like, what are you doing? I had so much respect for you. What is this? And it was a, a very weird experience uh, for the most part, I should say. And it was a matter of, at that point, I became so much more aware instead of just conceptually, I became aware of what is actually doing within that 60 minute period. It actually goes inside of you and merges with you biologically and psychologically. It learns everything about you. And it's like, in the third experience, it was mostly visual along with the metaphysical understanding. And it was showing me what is actually what it's actually doing to me. I was basically experience the experiencing the physical manifestation of psychology of or, or, or the psyche. Um, and I know that sounds very weird, but it was basically like a mold spreading out in some kind of a maze. And the maze was basically my psyche or myself. And it was learning everything it needs to learn about me. And then every every time it learned something, it tried to test it on me. So then it formed a face. And then how is this? Like sees my reaction to it. And then my reaction was pretty much nothing. It was trying to show me some kind of an angry face. Again, it felt like it was trolling me at first. But then I was like, I don't know what to do. That Like, cool, you can make faces. What do you want from me? Like, what is this? And then it just changed the face into something else until it actually got the face. All of them are angry faces, but it got the face that could really leave an impact on me. And when it did that face and I actually felt scared and shook for a bit, that face turned into a smirk. It's very, very intelligent. And, 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 and in that um, specific experience, it was intelligent in a childish way. Like, why are you doing all of this for but eventually, I, my lesson at that point, it seemed to be, if I were to boil it down to just one lesson, it seemed to be my constant concern to keep my sanity to some extent. Because as I was saying earlier, I happen to have my fair share of such experiences without consuming anything. I've always been like this for some reason. I don't see it necessarily as a gift, nor even as a curse. I just see it as something that just so happened to be there because I did not intentionally try to cultivate it in any manner. And sometimes it can be uh, fascinating, interesting, but sometimes it can perform some kind of a hindrance on my daily activities. If suddenly I became in one of these states, um, I, I shouldn't be driving. Right. And once I notice it picking up, I if it happened while driving, I would park on the side because I know things are going to get weird here. So when I consume such things, that's like a boost to the weirdness that is already there. Right. And at that point, I was just there and I was like, okay, like, why are you trying to show me? And he's like, you're so afraid. And I was like, afraid of what? Please talk. And it, it, it talks, but not uh, um, verbally. It's um, as as if it's talking telepathically in the sense that telepathy, or um, I think that's the pronunciation of it, telepathy? Mm. Telepathy. Yeah, telepathy, yeah. yeah. Telepathy, right? So telepathic communication is basically equivalent to intuition, right? Where it's not something that is 
necessarily verbal or necessarily thought through. It's just like that. You just have it. You just know it. And it was doing this to me. And it was like, like, why are you so scared? Uh, what are you afraid of? And then I was like, um, I don't know. And he's like, no, you know very well. And then it starts showing me, what, why are you resisting me so much? And then I became aware that I'm resisting because I want things to go in a very specific direction. And my direction was none of visual stuff because I was trying to be very firm and uh, productive about this session because I'm not seeing it as a way to party and have fun necessarily. I want something really productive out of it. And that was something I was taught about myself that because after being a religious person and then being an atheist, and then at some point I was a spiritual person, I stopped identified with all of these things altogether because I started seeing how limited these things are. Like, um, for example, and I, and I don't mean this in an offensive manner, but for example, I saw this meme once that really captures the overall kind of relationship between the spiritual people and the religious people. And it was that meme of a fish in a bowl inside the ocean. And that was labeled as um, religious people, as in being very constricted when they can't swim in the ocean. And then next to it, there is another fish that is not in a bowl, but is in the ocean. And that's labeled as spiritual people. But you do realize that the ocean is still a form. You still have some boundaries, even if they're much vaster space, is still a label. The fact that I can say that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual, or that I can say spirituality and you would um, interpret it in specific ways, that, that's how a dogma is like in its essence, right? You can communicate something and the other person would get it. But I want it to basically at some point, I want it to outgrow spirituality in some sense. I want it to see what is beyond this? What is beyond the inner and the external and look within? What does it mean to look within and all of these things together, right? So I kind of formed this kind of sensitivity towards the wishy-washy language, right? And I wanted something more concrete, something more productive. And that was basically what is being taught to me, that you don't have to always have something concrete and productive, that you don't have to always make sense out of things. You can just experience things being kind of chaotic, random, meaningless in some sense, and that's okay. And you can let your sanity go every now and then, because at that point, I was physically unable to move at all. And that was very scary uh, for me. And I, I won't even say for the ego and all of these things and demonize the sense of self. I, I was just feeling scared to let go altogether of everything that I cared for all the people that I care for. I had to forget about them entirely. And I was like, yes, but my friends are very concerned about me. I haven't been moving for like an hour or something. And he's like, nope, close your eyes. And then I was like, fine. And I closed my eyes and I was like, suffer. And I was like, okay. So it, it was basically a journey to suffer aimlessly without any destination whatsoever, just to suffer for the sake of suffering. And I was like, okay. Because if I didn't uh, agree to that, it would only get worse because it was kind of punishing me. It was uh, really pathetic in that um, experience, but it was kind of punishing me whenever I tried to make any sneaky moves to stop it or to decrease the intensity of the experience. Like I was really going at it. I was, I was like, um, I, I talked to my friend. I was like, please put some waterfall video on YouTube. It's like, what is that for? So he thought that I was trying to calm myself down. And that's what it understood as well. And it even made me open my eyes, looked at the water. And he's like, huh, water. 
and then made me close my eyes again. And then it learned everything it needed to learn about water and started started using it in, uh, in my own psyche. But actually, I wanted to put the water on so that I feel like I need to pee. Because when you pee, it can get out or it can become less intense, right? So it didn't know this, but I knew for a fact that I did feel like peeing at some point from all the sounds of water that I've been hearing around me. But I knew for a fact that if I were to get up and to go to the bathroom to pee, it would, because it's perceiving through my senses at this point, there's some, some sort of like an attempt to merge altogether. And if I did that, it would notice, and then it would kind of like punish me psychologically again. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just pee myself on the bed. And I don't care. I was in a hotel room. It's not my bed, no problem. But I knew for a fact that if I did, I was fasting for so long. I would barely pee anything. And then it would know and it would punish me for nothing. So I was cornered into giving in. Just I'm just going to aimlessly trip in the hippie sense. And that's about it. That's it's, It felt like a disappointment. And then it started actually getting interesting in the ways that I liked. And that's kind of the backwards law of Alan Watts, but in a some sort of like a direct experience where the more you try to intentionally have a positive experience, that in a, unintentional creates a negative one. And once you actually give in to the so-called negative experience, it unintentionally turns into a positive one. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and it seems that when you're in the throes of a come up on these heroic doses, um, the, the jestery sort of uh, comic nature of it comes out, like you said, and it seems to mm. be like trolling you and, and having fun with you. Um, mm. I've had plenty of heroic doses where the same thing would happen and I would close my eyes and see, you know, the beautiful array of colors and shapes and things that you see, you know, from closed eye visuals. And, you know, it represents itself to me a lot of times as like a winking face, like it'll wink at me and say like, uh, you know, you really don't know anything. And it does that in a, in a way to, as you said, to make you surrender to the experience so it can show you what you don't know. And it can break down your, your assumptions of what reality is and what reality has been. Um, and those assumptions, even in between experiences, they solid, they re-solidify themselves. So if I have an experience mm. and then six months later, I have another one, it has to sort of go through that same cycle of beating you down and showing you that you must surrender to what it's trying to show you. And you have to um, negate the, the walls of fear that you put up because we always put these walls of fear up in order to keep something out that we feel is going to like take away from what we already have. You know, we have this yep. weird sense of like what I have in my mind or whether it be physically, I have to keep and I have to hold on to it with all of my might. And when something threatens that and threatens to show you another way, it's so, so difficult. And I think that's why the phrase ego death comes out of that, because it's uh, it's almost like you're you're looking at a tapestry that is sewn together um, and each quilt is another part of your reality and another thing that you define as yourself or that you define as your family, your friends, your, your hobbies, um, the things that make you comfortable when you think about what reality is and what is real and what's important. And one by one, mm -hmm. those threads start to just unwind and they just fly away into the darkness. And if yeah. you can't maintain 
a sense of calm and surrender through that experience, it does beat you up. It tends to beat you down. And then, like you said, when you finally do surrender to it and just say, okay, I'm not going to be scared of suffering. Show me my suffering. Allow me to suffer and give me what I need. Then it does. And like you said, it gets mm -hmm. beautiful. It gets interesting. And that's where the real work is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's very interesting. Like I, by far, I wouldn't even say I understand what's the, because um, everything in existence is selfish inherently. And I don't see that as a bad thing. If anything, I see it as self-love, just inherent. You can't help it, but loving yourself, right? Even something as self-hatred, right? You hate yourself because you want the best. You know that you deserve better and you don't like this about yourself. It's it's still a, just a very harsh form, dense form of love, right? You can't help loving yourself. So from that understanding, you can apply the same on anything else, like for example, truffles. Okay, so what's in it for you? What are you trying to get out of this? And I've only glimpsed, I'm pretty sure it's a tiny thing, but it seemed to learn about so much through you. I don't know what it does with that because there's so many missing variables to it. It's a brand new territory for me. And I just, I find it very fascinating, but it's definitely not something that I would um, make as a habit of some sort because it's really um, magnificent. It's, it, it takes a toll on you. Afterwards, you need to process all of that. Right, especially if you took a heroic dose, you need a break. You need to settle down and, and just integrate all what happened, even if it was mere trolling. Within that chaos, seemingly chaos, there's a lot of order within it. And then you just have to make sense out of it, right? So I think psychedelics are not a joke at all. And I definitely also think that they're not for everyone, right? Because some people would just, from the very first beginning, first attempt on psychedelics, it would beat them up so much that it would make sure that they don't get near it anytime soon. It's just not for you. Go do something else, you know, because not everyone is meant to uh, experience the same stuff or even use the same tools in the first place, right? Uh, everyone is kind of living this kind of unique story and somehow it adds up to the biggest story of it all, right? And um, yeah, you know, I would say like psychedelics definitely don't take them lightly, right? They're not a joke at all. Um, and if you were to do so, make sure you have a lot of metaphysical understanding because that comes really handy in there. Like in the middle of me literally physically drowning in there in an ocean. And I don't know what it was doing to me, but I was in an ocean. The understanding all, all of these tools were kind of like a rope that I was holding onto, just holding onto it. I'm still suffering down there. All of the things, the seemingly chaotic things are happening, but that rope came really handy to kind of comfort you that, okay, you know, it will come to an end, right? And so I would say that have a trip sitter and take it easy and uh, definitely educate yourself before going in such things. Yeah. Yeah. When people ask me whether or not I recommend that they do psychedelics, I say, absolutely not. I don't recommend uh -huh. that anyone do psychedelics. But what I do recommend is that everyone research psychedelics because the ideas behind the potential of psychedelics 
at absolute least, if you do the necessary research, then you're going to be exposed to some ideas that are absolutely, in my opinion, going to be beneficial to you. Whether it transmutes mm. itself into a different form, that's up to you. And if you do feel the need to, after doing the necessary research, if you feel the need to take psychedelics, then by all means, do it. It's your life, you know, please. Your choices, and, and, you know, yeah. I'm here for, for support if you need me. But um, I yeah. never recommend them because they're just too profound. And I don't want to be responsible yeah. for somebody having such a crazy, profound experience unless, like, I really know them and understand, you know, like, uh, a lot of people close to me um, introduce psychedelics to, you know, in a slow way. Um, and it's benefited mm -hmm. a lot of people that, that are around me. But, but still, even that being said, like, that's taking a large risk. Mm -hmm. I don't remember who said this, but I heard it from Jordan Peterson. And uh, he was quoting somebody saying, be careful of unearned wisdom. I love that quote. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if it's too early, it can be really destructive. You know, it can be way too much to handle. And even for someone who is really like into the metaphysical stuff as pretty much 24 seven, that's what goes in my mind. Even when I'm sleeping, I dream about these things. It still wasn't a joke at all. It's not, it's not something to be taken lightly. I go in with utmost respect. Because to, in my experience, it literally felt like some psychological rape going on. I have no privacy whatsoever, nothing to hide. I can't. And then it's just not that I was no longer able to hide things from it. I was no longer able to hide things from myself. It was showing me things that I didn't want to see in the first place, right? So yeah, it's, um, it's definitely not a joke. Right. But I don't have any regrets about it, to be honest. Yeah. It was really worth it. Yeah. That's part of that, you know, surrendering process. And mm -hmm. interestingly, one of the, one of the things that I learned from, from taking psychedelics is that psychedelics are not the only way to get to this point. Um, to mm -hmm. me, they're my preferred way and they seem like a shortcut streamlined directly to like the Atman um, mm -hmm. or the Brahman, whichever one you, uh, you feel like identifying with that at the time. Um, but that's an interesting point as well, is that something that is so profound will also tell you at the same time, I'm not the only way that you can achieve this. So, um, mm -hmm. have you found that there have been other ways, whether they be spontaneous or through spiritual practice that you've been able to achieve like a mystical type experience? Hmm. Well, I would say meditation, right? Of course. But again, the comes in the issue where you might be adding to something that is not really there, right? So like going into these practices with the intention to have something specific that can bum you out and highly disappoint you, but it can also delude you in some way or another right so for me personally i never intentionally tried to have a mystical experience if it were to happen so be it if not then i will use the usual down-to-earth so to speak methods like reading contemplating observing around because you can look at any creature and again you would find the same pattern you can find the truth in it and that's something like for example i learned from ramdas right that when you learn how to listen the guru becomes everybody everybody every form becomes the guru and you can look at any form and it can teach you so much right and in the meantime if something is bound to happen i'm welcoming it if not 
well, I'm still going about my day, right? Because fundamentally speaking, there is nothing really to attain as um, vague as that sounds, right? There is nothing to attain because like those who claim that they've attained, say, enlightenment, for example, they themselves tell you that once that happens, you realize that you've always been enlightened, that there was nothing to attain, no place to go. And that's exactly how it is because something like the name Buddha, meaning uh, the godlike or the awakened one, it stems out of the word Buddha. And that's, that is one who is already here and now, right? And where else can you be but here and now? And thus, by default, you're already enlightened. But again, it goes back to the fashion of spirituality, the uh, the dogma in some sense, the very um, vast dogma of spirituality, where enlightenment is kind of some kind of a checklist. If you match it, you're enlightened. If not, you're not, right? So again, it goes back to questioning the, um, the things that perhaps most people don't question it anymore. And it's what is enlightenment anyway? And how does it look like, right? And the thing is, it really is, and 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 that should be the end of the sentence. Enlightenment is, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it's not this or that. It's all of these things together. And I think it's kind of unfair to describe enlightenment um, as anything in specific because the whole thing is still going on. It's not done. And as far as we, most of us in these kinds of circles, we believe that existence is infinite, that it will forever keep going. And then the show is not done. So how can I summarize what the show is about exactly, right? So as far as you can do, that's something like, for example, Emma Watts talks about, and it's called an extrapolation, where you draw the unknown based on what is already known, right? There might be truth in it, but it doesn't have to be exactly like that if you were to actually go as far, right? So for me personally, I would say just deal with what you have, but don't hold on it as absolute truth, that it will never ever change because you don't really know and you don't really want to feel deeply disappointed and have some kind of a serious existential crisis. Although to some extent, you need to have something to stand on, at least at first, right? Because otherwise, if you took it to the extreme, you would be kind of a nutcase at that point. You wouldn't be really very much an active member of society, right? And I don't believe that the point is to leave everything behind and go to the forest and into the wild, right? For some people, that is definitely the way to go. But for most people, it is not. And they don't have to do that, right? So I would say just educate yourself, explore, and try to experiment directly and observe even something as mundane as your own room and just to look at it as much as possible with practice without necessarily adding so much meaning and labels to it and that intention in some way it ripples out on the rest of life or at least this room you're sitting in and life is very responsive right not necessarily in the exact same way that you wanted it to be like i want a million bucks and like here you go a million bucks it doesn't have to be that kind of uh, simplistic transaction or feedback loop but it definitely responds in some way or another. So it's a matter of like sitting, looking at the room and just asking, please teach me and just wait with patience. Something came up nice. No, move on. 
try again later. So it can be through these everyday experiences, the so-called mundane ones, without necessarily having to have heroic doses all the time or to be meditating for hours or fasting for 24 hours a day or something like that. I mean, sure, you can explore these things and you may take that path really heavily and be some kind of a pioneer in it. Sure, go ahead. But I think for most people, they don't want to give up all of these um, daily experiences and leave their loved ones behind and quit their jobs and do all of these things. Like I have some sort of a job. Yes, I'm my own boss and all of that, but it's still something that I'm committed to, right? But it doesn't hold me back from exploring the things that I generally explore. Like all what I'm talking about right now, these are the things that go in my mind, regardless if there is a microphone in front of me or not, right? So that makes kind of the, um, the whole situation makes it a bit more playful, not the sense that it's um, it's an easy thing, but it's not that serious either. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's a, it's a balance, you know, I think if you come from a Western culture and you start to expose yourself to the concepts of enlightenment, you want to jump, you know, headfirst into that. And you want to sort of negate the rest of your life and what you've been doing up until this point. But I think what it's, it's important to realize is that everything is sort of a unity of dualities, you know, a very perfect balance of, of either thing. And, you know, I've sort of abandoned the concept of trying to, quote unquote, become enlightened you know, a while ago, because, again, something I, I learned, as you said, from Ramdas is if you're attempting to gain enlightenment, then you're in the wrong spot. You're standing from the wrong place because it's not something you can attain. Um, you know, I. I particularly feel sometimes most enlightened when I'm doing the dishes or something, you know, if you can just look mm -hmm. around your room, like you said, or, you know, when you're driving, experience the steering wheel on your hands, jump off autopilot so you can sort of observe what it is that you're doing while you're on autopilot. That way you can jump back on with a more informed and holistic view of reality and, um, and the world itself. You can, you can create a, a perspective for yourself where, um, you're just exuding love, compassion, and joy in life. And to me, that's, that's what enlightenment is about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, um, for sure. I agree with you, right? So like, I would say that it's just a matter of paying a little bit of attention. Not that you have to always be attentive and doing things consciously, because there's a lot of value in being an autopilot as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you accidentally touch a hot stove or something you know it's it's best to be an autopilot in that case than to be like oh man this is hot i better take my arm away before it burns like there is no time for this it's best to just you know and it's it's the same thing when it comes to being um detached and not identified with anything right there is of course a lot of value in it but there is a lot of value in being identified with something so it becomes a matter of understanding all of these fancy stuff, really understanding them. But then which choice? Allowing yourself to detach and attach at will kind of things. Because like, for example, if I identify as a philosopher or something, right? And if I'm really holding on tightly on this, the downside of it, if I were to play football with my friends, I wouldn't be able to let myself to go fully in it because again, that's a game. It's made up. It's not real. These things don't matter. And all of these things, it will take a lot of the beauty away. Yet the, um, the upside of it <clears throat> is that 
for example, having this identity as a philosopher, it really puts you in that state. And then it, you flourish genius out of it because you've been really absorbed into this whole role of being a philosopher. You will come up with great things, right? So I think the beauty is to kind of like back and forth between attaching and identifying with things and detaching and de-identifying from it all, right? Because all of them have values in it because I don't genuinely think that we're here to transcend human experience because why come here in the first place if it's meant to be transcended, right? You're here to really sink in it as much as possible, but perhaps because it can cause a lot of unnecessary suffering, perhaps it's wise to understand the fundamental layer behind the human experience as you go about the human experience, right? Or as Alan Watts, for example, says it, the point is not to give the show away, right? The point is to realize that the show is a show, but still go about playing the show and, and, and experiencing it. <clears throat> or some Zen quote, I think uh, somebody said it, it was before enlightenment shut put, after enlightenment shut put, you know, like, where are you going to go? You know, you're not going to start, I don't know, seeing molecules in the air and, and floating around. Maybe, perhaps, I don't know. But for the most part, you're not going to do this. You're still going to wash your dishes. You're still going to read books and drive around, take a shit, do all of these things. And these things are not mundane. If you had the right understanding, you would see that something as mundane as taking a shit and perhaps even boring, that's actually still creation happening because that poop is food, is a fancy meal for so many creatures just waiting for it down there. And then goes the food chain, these creatures survive, and then eat, other creatures eat on it. And somehow along the way, you find some apple to eat. And that started from there, right? Or someone else might eat an apple that came from your poop, right? Not directly, but you know, indirectly came from your poop. So it's not really mundane. You can add a lot of meaning to it. And there is nothing wrong. And that basically goes back to uh, Sam Harris's point that you must be careful if you're adding something, uh, meaning to something or profundity to something that is not really there. It really isn't there. All of it is kind of made up in some sense, but that doesn't make it any less real or any less meaningful, right? And that's basically the implications of the meaning of the meaninglessness, right? Yes, in its entirety, there is no meaning in the sense that there is no specific meaning. And to really understand this enough to, is to start finding meaning in the sense of beauty in the meaninglessness of it. And it's that it can have so many meanings in, into it that it makes it meaningless. All of these meanings cancel out. It's like the pros and cons of anything. They cancel out and then you come up at the zero-sum game. Neutrality, there is nothing really, you know? So being one with everything doesn't feel like love and bliss in the first place. It feels like nothing. There is nothing to be experienced at all. And the duality and the separation is desired in the first place because you can't experience bliss without non-bliss. Or as Elwood said, you need to hit yourself on the head to feel uncomfortable because it's nice when you stop, right? So through that um, opposition, it's the, called the, the unity of opposition. Through this uh, experiences, the comparison between them, the relation between them, you be able to tell one from another, right? And it's the same thing as if you're constantly feeling happy, constantly having ups. It eventually, these ups are going to form some kind of a straight line. If every up is a dot, it will form a straight line and then it will be your basic stuff, your now. This how it will feel like. It won't feel like anything special. 
it will feel very much like everyday kind of life, kind of mundane by default. And then again, you would look for another up, something more even intense than that. So it's not to not desire things, right? Like you may desire things, but it's important to kind of be here and now as cliche as this sounds simultaneously as you desire things is to be able to feel appreciation and gratitude and curiosity and wonder in the so-called mundane things as you go about fulfilling more of your desires. There is nothing wrong about desires because that's the basis of creation, right? And But it's important to be aware of what is right now as you go about something else to be is right now, right? So I think the most thing people should be grateful for is the ability to experience any gratitude in the first place, right? Because things will change one way or another, whether in terms of people in your life or in terms of materialistic things, all of these things will change because even you are changing. But something that most likely is going to stick around if you practice it enough is the ability to experience gratitude regardless of what is going on or what you have in that moment, right? And that's something to be grateful for, being able to feel grateful in the first place, right? So, yeah, you know, I would say life is, um, it's not fair for me to describe life in, in one word, but I will do a bit of unfairness here and say that life is very interesting, right? And I don't think it's good. I don't think it's bad. I don't necessarily try to always have pleasant or unpleasant experiences. I just find it interesting. And something as the experience of boredom, it in itself can be very interesting, right? And in some way, I don't care if I'm adding to it because that's what must be done. Because as, for example, the the, the Alan Watts's um, perspective that existence is relationship, right? And it's not in the sense that how people understand that you create your own reality because you really don't. You just provoke what is already there. That is the potentiality of what is already there. Like you look at the sun and you provoke, you make it shine, right? But without the sun being there in the sense of vibration, energetic vibrations, there was nothing to provoke in the first place. So your eyes on their own are not enough. You need something, some kind of vibrations to be happening out there, and then your eyes can make something out of it, right? So I would say, you know, just appreciate it, I guess, you know, just enjoy it, uh, learn more, explore more. Mo, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I Thanks for having I me. I appreciate man. your perspective, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Uh, but sure. as we wrap up, is there anything else you want to get out to the listeners? Anything you want to plug, your podcast, all that? Well, there is my podcast, Connecting the Dots. You can find it uh, on my Instagram page through the link in the bio. Um, my Instagram is at Mo Natura, and that's about it. That's all. Yeah. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it.